Hi guys, welcome to CLD Talks. Uh, I am your host Ian Corbett and today um, in an unusual series of events we also have Connor with us um, here today for the first ever joint hosting CLD Talks episode. Connor, how are you? Hi, all good, all good. It's actually nice just to talk to be honest and we'll have the pressure that you've got so let's go <laughs> absolutely absolutely so the reason that we are here is, is we had a conversation with today's guests um a couple of weeks ago and are really excited about about the chat that we're going to have this afternoon and decided that we both wanted to to be on on um, this podcast so today we have andy reynolds from the university of edinburgh and alison niharriga from Northum- northumbria university hello both how are you good thank you wearing red for um show racism the red card Andy? Now I just feel totally bad because I'm not wearing red. (laughs) Um, Hello, I'm I'm Andy Reynolds and I am good. Anyway, thanks to you two guys for, um, you know, having us here and for um, changing your format for us. I think this is going to be great. Absolute pleasure. No, thank you. Thank you both for being here. What we'd love to do, as we always do, is just to hear a bit more about you. Um, the, the conversation today is going to go um, on to the research project that, that you're here to talk about. But first, it would be really nice just to hear a bit about your previous experience and your, your current role and, and anything else that makes you put your shoes on in the morning. So, Alice, <laughs> I'm going to go, go to you first um, and tell yeah, us a little sure. bit about yourself. Um, well, I'm currently working at Northumbria, as you said, as a, an assistant professor, which is... A, fancy way of saying senior lecturer but uh, I've been there for about 14 years now but um, what makes me get out of bed in the morning and get to work feeling all excited is um, teaching about young people uh, because in a previous life I was a community development worker and a youth worker and uh, that's what I'm still really passionate about that's what uh, I like to teach about that's what we're researching about and I still have links in the field with lots of youth work projects I'm very passionate about young people making sure that their voices are heard and that talking about their needs is is really on the academic agenda Brilliant. thank you Alison Andy yourself um, yeah, um, just as a plug, Alison and I um, used to work together um, at Northumbria University. We worked together from 2011 to 2020, the end of 2020, 20. wasn't it? Yeah. yeah. I'm now um, at the University of Edinburgh. Um, I've got a kind of dual role. Um, I'm the programme director for an MSc, but you can also do it as a postgraduate certificate or a postgraduate diploma in social justice and community action. It's a fantastic um, master's programme. It's a part-time master's programme and it's a fully online master's programme. And we've got students from all over the world. It's probably one of the best programmes that I've ever been involved in, to be honest with you. And it's really flexible because it's designed for people who are practitioners so it's people who can't take you know two years out of their life a year out of their life to do a postgraduate um, qualification and they want to do it um, as they work so i'm doing that and also on top of that um, i also teach on the new ma learning in communities um, program at the university of edinburgh i know you've had 
Gary um, Fraser on the programme, you've had Stuart Moyer on the programme and you've had Sarah Ward on the programme who are also um, all teach on the MA in Learning and Community. So I'm continuing um, that tradition by coming on to um, CLD Talks, but that programme is a new programme. It used to be called Funnily enough, community education, um, and that is an accredited programme with the CLD Standards Council in Scotland, and that's me. Brilliant, Andy. Thanks very much. I, I'm assuming all of the information for both of those courses can be found on the University of Edinburgh website. Perfect. And Northumbria. Do not forget Northumbria. Northumbria. Apologies. Apologies. <laughs> so if you are interested in either of those two courses, please check out Northumbria University um, or the University of Edinburgh websites. So. The reason we're here today is to talk about a sort of like exciting piece of research that, that you guys have been working on and, and that me and Connor um, were delighted to hear a little bit about recently. Firstly, if you could tell us, before we get on to uh, the, the juicy bits about the research and, and what the findings were and, and what, what you did, can you tell us a, bit, like, a little bit about how the research came about, how what, what the question was and, and how you sort of developed mm -hmm. the, the piece of research? It, it, as a lot of these things have done, it came uh, as a result of the pandemic and of COVID. Uh, Andy and I were teaching at Northumbria and we were very aware that there was a lot of very stressed young adults out there. Um, we were reading a lot about youth work and our contacts, certainly my contacts, were talking about the real difficulties youth workers were having during the first lockdowns because um, I don't know if you remember, but um, youth work wasn't designated as a, a, a key, it wasn't given key worker status right at the beginning. So unlike social workers um, or even supermarket checkout people, uh, youth workers were really struggling to keep contact with the young people that they worked with. Uh, and I was hearing lots of stuff from the from the field about how difficult it was. So during that point, lots of academics were um, starting to do lots of research about the pandemic and the impact that it was having and we were interested on and in what they, what was coming out about young people. However, when we started to read what was being produced both in academic journals or um, you know coming up through the media, everything was talking about schools or it was talking about you know young people's mental health per se. But none of it was talking about youth work. So Andy and I, being ex-youth workers and, and you know having a real interest, we started to think about, well, if there's all this worry about the pandemic, and we knew we know from previous pandemics that um, mental health going forward in the short and medium term takes a real hit. We knew that there was going to be significant, uh, you know, worries about children and young people. And we were also very aware that youth work and youth workers have always had a really important role in supporting young people, particularly through that tricky transition, childhood, adolescence, young adult. And we were just absolutely um, gobsmacked that nobody was talking about youth work at all. So being the good academics that we are, we decided to write a paper about it, <laughs> which we did in the summer of uh, 2022, basically thinking about where youth work was, 
what role it had in terms of supporting young people um, through this mental health crisis that was taking place as a result of the pandemic. Um, but I should say it hadn't started with the pandemic. It was kind of um, magnified by the pandemic. And we really wanted to think about the role of youth work going forward and uh, kind of put that on the on the agenda and also highlight the fact that um, if youth work was to have a role, um, it needed funding to do that. So that was where we started. And then we thought, actually, we've got lots of anecdotal evidence about youth, but about what youth workers are saying to us about mental health. But we need a bit of evidence here. So we decided that we'd do a survey and we did that online around about uh, December, January last year. And that took us to the piece of research that we're going to talk about. Oh, superb. Thanks. And anything to add to that? Yeah, I'd, it, um, I think Alison summarised that fantastically. I, I, the only thing I would add is, like as, as I've previously said, Alison and I used to work together. And actually, we'd had a lot of conversations about, you know, the role of youth work and mental health prior to the pandemic. Um, and at Northumbria University, when you're an academic, you're also what's called a personal tutor. So um, you you have duties that you kind of you pr provide pastoral and academic support to, you know, um, throughout their journey of the degree program or the master's program, you know, whatever they're studying. And uh, Alison and I had had many conversations, you know, through um, my tenure um, at Northumbria about you know the the amount of young people who were coming into higher education and were presenting with um, mental health issues. And we talked a lot about the fact that we were using as personal tutors, you know, our youth work skills. And we got like every, you know, academics would all allocated, you know, maybe like 12 students a year, you know, that they were looking after. And we would gradually find that more students who weren't our personal tutees would send us kind of emails to say, can I speak to you? Um, about this so-and-so you know has spoken to you and says that you know you you give some like really good advice so Alison and I had had conversations about the role um, of youth work in support um, of mental health you know before the pandemic but I think the way that we were thinking about it was about you know and further education and higher education, there is a need for youth work skills, you know, because, um, you know, young people were presenting, and this is before the pandemic, you know, young people were presenting with increased levels of anxiety, you know, they were reporting, you know, depression, they were reporting, you know, kind of mental health issues. And that, that was accelerating, actually, before the pandemic um, so these conversations had been ongoing but whenever we'd have these kind of conversations you know with youth workers before the pandemic there was a real kind of reticence to actually say you know we're doing mental health support work well whilst we're working with young people you know we're we're doing you know kind of mental health support work but I think since the pandemic because the demand you know, and we'll talk about that in our results, you know, the demand was increasing um, for youth workers to do 
more kind of mental health support with young people um, that I think now it's starting um, to be on the agenda and it's starting to come into kind of like mainstream, well, hopefully it's going to come into mainstream kind of thinking, you know, from youth workers and, you know, from CLD that, you know, this has actually been something that youth workers have been doing for quite a while. Absolutely. I, th I think as well, you, you highlighted a really important transition point as well for me that's often missed. Alison, you mentioned about the transitions into, into sort of adolescence mm -hmm. and then into young adulthood, but, but quite often we've got really strong relationships as youth workers. And, and me and Connor have spoke extensively about the differences between third sector and public sector and, and that kind of thing. But what we don't focus as much on is a transition out. Actually, a, a lot of the young people that we work with or support, when we, we know that they're going to university, that's a positive destination and that's a positive outcome for us as youth workers. But actually, we probably dropped the ball a little bit there. And I suppose that's probably an area that we could we could pick apart another day or maybe another research project altogether. Um, totally. I think it's worth highlighting. So th thank you both. Um, I suppose then we're here is the sort of the juicy bit of the conversation today about about, about your research and and what you did um, and, and, and yeah. what you found from that. Um, pass over to you guys. Yeah, we started off, we had a very basic question. It was about, you know, are you doing mental health support? Uh, we gave a definition of that. We can talk about that. Um, we asked youth workers, you know, what kind of things do young people come to you with? Uh, we asked, um, have you, do you feel confident in doing this type of work? And do you feel you need any additional support? So that was basically where we started. We wanted to get some evidence uh, to back up all of these things that we already knew from our own practice and from talking to youth workers. We know that there's an awful lot of support work that's around self-esteem, that's around confidence building, just listening, all of those things. Um, and I guess that's the other thing to pick out because... Um, just as the, the pandemic was hitting, I was doing some training uh, as a counsellor, uh, specifically wanting to focus on working with young people. And it became very, very clear to me as I was doing my counselling training that a lot of the stuff I was learning about counselling, I actually knew already from my youth work. So if we think about person-centred counselling, this idea of, you know, positive um respect, genuine respect for the other person, accepting them where they are, um, you know, being non-judgmental, absolutely fundamental to youth work practice, part and parcel of our, our values and how we work. So that was where we started. We just wanted to find out, tell us what you are doing. And we were really surprised um, at some of the things we found out. I guess that, that to, to give you the highlights, where unsurprisingly, um, youth workers told us that there was a growing need for mental health support, that it had certainly mushroomed during the pandemic and the lockdowns, and it was continuing afterwards. They were getting lots of young people coming to them, um, disclosing things about you know their own mental health, about suicidal ideation, um, alarming kind of numbers of young people who were engaging in self-harm, lots of young people who were feeling very isolated, very anxious. And, and to get back to that thing of adolescence, uh, one of the things we know about adolescence is that 
um, as human beings, we're moving away from our families and we're trying to make more and more connections with our peers and peers become really important, developing your own sense of identity and who you are. And if we if we think about that in the context of the lockdowns, that was precisely what was stopped. Young people couldn't meet together. Uh, all of those social interactions were really curtailed. They could happen online to a degree, but again, there were divisions between which young people maybe found that easier than others. And certainly if we, we link it with, we map it against social deprivation. We know a lot of young people um, whose families couldn't afford extensive um, data plans or, you know, uh, pay for really complicated mobile phone plans. Those young people were losing out big style. So growing need, more need, extensive need. Um, and we found that a lot of youth workers told us that in their day-to-day -day practice, um, about half of the youth workers that we spoke to said that mental health was the main component of what they did. So they were doing other things. Obviously, they're doing activities, crafts, sports, um, outdoor ed, but a lot of the stuff that was being brought to them, they they told us themselves was was really to do with mental health and mental health support. Um, they told us that they used their youth work skills quite extensively. So active listening, communication skills, being non-judgmental, being empathetic, uh, were all part and parcel of, of what they felt was useful in being able to offer that initial mental health support to young people. A lot of youth workers were referring young people on. It wasn't they were that they were telling us they were now becoming mental health experts. They were um, really mindful of the fact that they needed to get these young people, to, you know, to sources of help and support that they needed. And they were very good at doing that. And they they told us about, you know, uh, a, a wide variety of people that they referred young people on to. The big difficulty was that the waiting lists were getting ever bigger. They were big before COVID hit. There was already a problem, but they were now being overwhelmed, um, you know, 18 month, two year waiting lists. So after the initial referral and the initial assessment, youth workers told us that a lot of these young people were actually what Andy and I termed bouncing back. So there was an awful lot and there is an awful lot of holding being done by youth workers. Um, and they also told us that in order to do that holding work and this support work well, being good youth workers, as we all have done, they sought out the training that they felt they needed. Uh, so a lot of them had been on mental health first aid training. A lot of them had done um, suicide awareness training. A lot of them had done all sorts of training around anxiety, developing safety plans. All of that um, really prompted by what the young people were saying to them. And sometimes it was easy for them to find that training, but there were barriers, uh, most of which was to do with money. So their organization either couldn't support them 
to go on any training that was available. They couldn't they couldn't pay for it. Uh, and that's a bigger issue that I'm sure we'll come on to about youth work resources and funding and cuts. Um, or the organization themselves couldn't free up the worker to go on the training. Um, because of all of the constraints that have happened over the last uh, 12 years or so in youth work budgets, people are really running with staff teams that are greatly reduced. And even to take a day out to go on a training course was seen by some organisations far more than they could afford to let their workers do. So lots of need out there but lots of really positive work going on. However, what Andy and I would argue is that that work isn't really being recognized as being youth work. Uh, and that's what we really feel needs to be remedied. We, we need to really celebrate what youth workers are doing. We need to confirm for youth workers themselves the very positive work that they are doing. But what, what we don't want to do is say, this is an additional kind of thing that you should be doing without the resources to support you in doing it. Absolutely. Thank you very much, Alison. Andy, anything you want to come in there? Yeah, I mean, Alison, honestly, that was a fantastic summary of the, the key findings um, of our project. The only thing I would kind of add to that was the sampling, like who we actually surveyed and why. Um, now, um, I... I never spoke about this earlier, but Alison's um, background in youth and community work is in the northeast of England, and my background in youth and community work is in the central belt of Scotland, predominantly the west. Um, I've got an in-betweeny accent. I'm from the shots, um, so um, you know. So I still, it's one of those things. I mean, um, I left actually the the CLD sector in two thousand and eight in Scotland and I went to uh, Nicaragua um, of all places um, but I've been out of the, the the community learning and development sector in Scotland for quite a long time but it's so funny the familiar faces when you come back it's like I know you I know you I know you so I I was still in contact or I was still known um, in the, the, the in the central belt of Scotland predominantly in the west and because of working in the MA and learning in communities at the University of Edinburgh, I'd started to build up contacts um, in Edinburgh and supporting students on their placements. I was starting to have some dialogues with um, you know, youth organisations. So we said, let's do you know, um, surveys we know, um, especially online surveys, the response rate is not good you know you can a lot of people don't fill it in but if they've got some kind of contact with you or they feel some kind of sense of obligation um, usually they will fill it in so we we targeted um initially organizations that we had connections with albeit you know distant connections but we had connections and then I just got in touch with where where our students at the University of Edinburgh typically do placements so I got in touch with those um, organisations as well. But there was a rationale for that, not just convenience. We were interested in looking at the differences in practice and youth work practice between uh, the central belt of Scotland and northeast England, because I lived in the northeast of England um, from, as I said to you before, from 2011 to 2020, uh, to 2020 and I was doing my PhD 
um, at the same time. And I was I actually worked very very closely for two with for two years with a youth work project in Gateshead, well just south of Gateshead, a place called Burtley, which is actually closer to the the Durham border. Um, and I saw the impact of austerity, you know, in the northeast of England. We're talking about the public sector cuts, and arguably, you know, the northeast of England was affected more than Scotland. The literature will can will confirm that as well. So we're interested to see as well if there were any regional, national differences, you know, um, because believe it or not. Um, and the literature confirms this, you know, Scottish youth work is are, is better funded um, than English youth work at present, you know, and you, because of the CLD Standards Council and the relationship with the Scottish Government, the relationship with the Scottish Government and Youth Link Scotland and so on and so forth, you know, there's quite strong ties there. So we have maintained you know, um, a relationship um, with government and quite a positive relationship with government. So we were also interested in seeing as well if the findings were actually any different between um, Scotland and England. And there were some differences. The point that Alison said about, you know, training, you know, um, it was actually in England, it was the inability um, to free up workers to actually go on the training itself that was more of the key issue which would highlight you know the, the quite considerable staffing issues you know human resource kind of issues going on in england but in scotland the issue was much more around workplaces being able to afford the training um you know in addition to you know they just did not have the additional funds to be able to send their workers um on this training so there were some some key differences um between uh, the, the 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 countries the areas that we were targeting and we were trying to see if for perhaps if perhaps this was more common in England than it was in Scotland. So we were looking at that as a as a, a factor, as a variable as well. Brilliant. Thank you very much. I mean, it seems to me tragically bleak that that, that Scotland is the better funded youth work sector, having worked in um, the third sector for the for the last while. Um, that, that, that there's a there's a worse a worse scenario than that um, for young people in particular. Seems to me to be. Aye, fair, fairly tragic. Um, so glad, glad to be on the side that that is maybe um, benefiting slightly more. Um, but it's not nice to hear that that, that things are even worse down there than they are currently. I was going to bring um Connor in currently. One of the things that you you'd said is was that the majority of of youth works youth workers' time was on sort of supporting um mental health in some sort of capacity. And, and Connor obviously, or not obviously for for listeners that are just tuned in, but Connor runs a um a youth provision um, in South Lanarkshire and I just wanted to sort of bring you in to see if like does that resonate with you is, is that most of the work that the guys and you and your team are doing sort of linked to to, to mental health yeah no absolutely so like we um we've always sort of touched on mental health but not as prominent and as organized I suppose as it is now so we would run school offers working with local high schools and um, also just within our provisions as well and when we were doing these sort of groups generally it was behavioural based it was 
truancy was the big issue. It was re-engagement. It was positive destinations. That's what we always done. That was that was the bread and butter. Um, over the last couple of years, there's been a real shift, and really predominantly, I would say, the last two years coming out of the pandemic, the work we are being asked to do is focused within mental health, and it's young people who pretend who have get maybe anxiety anxiety about going back into the school building just because so many people there's over a thousand kids in one space and um, they they've been completely out of routine so they can't they put themselves back in and actually fit within a school routine again by your doing your 50 minute periods and how do you sustain that and sit in class and listen to the teacher and do your work and there's a lot more um, oh, no, but it's rebellion's the wrong word but there's a lot more kids that are just you now voting with their feet I suppose so they're maybe just wandering about the schools, they're not getting in um, but the main driver is the mental, mental health aspect of it isn't it just because they can't be bothered and they don't like maths, they don't like Spanish it's that there's a physical issue there that they can't get in um, so that sort of changed what we've done in our approaches and what we are delivering um, completely. Like we don't, we've not done a behavioural group now for two years um, because it has been. Let's try and work with these kids who are really struggling just to engage within school and just turn up and and work and do good work and not just sort of waste their time. Um, I suppose is that's the way you put it, it sounds maybe a wee bit harsh, but they're just wandering or they're not going in. So we are doing a lot of work within that. They've set, there's a local project and local school set up a project for like a new hub for young people to go into, which is really positive. Um, So the kids that are hopefully that have not attended maybe within the last couple of years um, and new first years that are going in there are going to be able to then access this where you're getting youth work intervention um, for a couple of hours a day and then they can also get caught up with other subjects but also then reintegrate slowly into classes again because I think there's an acknowledgement as well that the kids just can't sit so it's rebuilding that back up and let's actually stop just shouting at them and like let's ask them why and let's see what the issues are and We'll tackle the issues with them and what's been really great is that they want your workers on board because we can build relationships with fundamental first role when we do our job is building relationships we can do that sometimes and i would actually argue easier than teachers and because it's a bread and butter we don't always have 30 people in a conveyor belt just running in so the fact that they brought us in to do that is really really important and it shows that there's a value there in what we do um, and it allows us to then also try and support them properly and find out what their sort of issues are and then they just get a youth work intervention which is class because I think any young person that's been involved in youth work usually has a good experience they can build relationships and hopefully they can start re-engaging within more classes throughout the day um, but that, I suppose that's just more a school-based sort of point of view but within our centre a lot of the um, our most a popular group we have is um, a gender-based group um, and to be honest it's really busy a lot of the time and it's just people just want that support so it's set up in such a way it's not just a drop-in but they know that in that time that they're going to get support from youth workers we're going to talk about issue-based subjects um because they feel they really need it and it's really successful at the moment and a couple of years ago it wasn't that um, but now there is a real shift and a lot of our conversations and the issues we are dealing with is based on young people's mental health and are telling us which is good so it's allowing us to react but you would argue the training's an issue you're using your skills and you're using your capabilities but then you're just signposting as well to other places because there's not 
we are not always trained. We're not always maybe the most equipped person to deal with severe mental health issues because that's not what we're trained to do. So, but what we are trained to do is listen. We're we're there to engage and we're there to be people to try and get them to get it off their chest and show them where to go um, and support what's appropriate and what we've had to learn is actually it's that appropriateness as well. What what is your lane? So we are working with mental health. We are having these discussions, but you're not an expert. We are not experts. We're no trained mental health practitioners, but there's we need to know our line and find that balance, which I think a lot of places, and not just speaking for myself, but other places and other people that I've spoke to through third sector and um, local authority level as well, that is a massive thing. The news us finding our lane capabilities, staff capabilities, so that we're no putting the young people in a negative space because that also doesn't help if we give potential wrong feedback or we don't really give advice as such, but how we react to these things because you maybe just don't know um, also kind of helps. So we're, we're learning that as we go. Um, but I think that, like you guys had already mentioned, where youth worker skill sets are set up for this type of work so we generally can use our skill sets I suppose to support the kids the best we can. Here's Connor. There's a question sort of came to mind from both what um you were saying Andy and Connor. And, and I wonder, I mean I, I can probably guess what the answer to this be will, will be, but I suppose that I wanted to pose a question to everyone in the group is is do do you think youth workers are the right people to be doing this job? The reason for asking that question is is Connor's right that there is a there, there is or, or at least there should be a clear distinction between who offers mental health support and who offers mental health care. And I think quite often those are blurred lines that are becoming greyer by the minute. And I, I wonder if, if anything came up in the research or, or just anecdotally that you, that you could talk to around, well, we recognise that the youth workers are doing that and I think they absolutely should be celebrated for doing that and remunerated for doing that. Is, it, is that a sticking plaster on the fact that there isn't enough mental health provision um, via the NHS or, or, or via other provisions? And actually, are we propping up other sectors by by, by doing some of this work? I think I, I liked Connor's distinction between mental health support and mental health care. Um, and, I, and I think we were very specific with the youth workers that we spoke to. I mean, we said to them what we mean by initial mental health support is all that stuff about listening, not judging young people um, when they disclose things to them, um, helping them find the right resources. So maybe looking at websites like Couth or Young Minds, um, being able to refer them on to appropriate services. It was all that kind of stuff, but initially just that, okay, talk to me. I'm not going to judge you or, you know, um, start going on about what you're doing and saying it's wrong. And when we asked the youth workers in our survey how confident they felt about that, 75% of them said totally confident. And then when we said, well, do you have any skills in providing this? Uh, a good 70% of them then told us, well, we, we actually think this is part of what youth workers already do. So that's initial initial support. Uh, so to get back to, to what you said, Ian, I think you're right. I think the initial support is there and there's a lot of youth workers that can do that. When it comes to the care, 
which is the more detailed stuff and maybe, you know, the more psychotherapeutic interventions, it's not there in the numbers that is needed. And it, we, we need to be very careful that we're not saying that youth work can take any of that on. We're, what we're, I think we're trying to reflect is the reality of what's happening. Um, you know, as I said before, youth workers do refer young people on, but because those services are really struggling themselves, then those young people are coming back and looking for additional support. And that's that's the bit that we really want to have the conversation about. You know, we want youth workers to tell us and um, well, what do you do in those situations and what skills do you use? How do you hold young people? Now, just to just to add on to what Alison says, I completely I think it's it's a great question and it's a really important question and it's it's a difficult one to wrestle with because on the one hand I want to say the youth workers are telling us you know, even before the pandemic, you know, they were doing this kind of work. And I think there's a reflection there about how youth work itself has changed over the years where, you know, um, we've moved from more universal type youth work where these softer skills, you know, that personal development, that confidence building, you know, that kind of that the plans, the personal development plans that you would make with young people and you would set goals and it would be soft outcomes. Do you know what I mean? It's not soft outcomes for the young people, but you know, it's kind of more soft skill outcome orientated. And then like, you know, through new labor, I'm going to get political now, you know, through new labor, you know, through the coalition government, you know, through the conservative government, we've really moved into much more project-based youth work where there are preset outcomes and but what it looks like from the the data that Alison and I have collected is that youth workers are doing this project-based work that's maybe around employability or antisocial behavior racism you know it's got a particular you know, outcome, but they're doing that alongside it, you know, but that's not what they're getting really paid to do. You, you know, they're, they're doing, they're getting paid for the more project-based kind of work, but they're doing that, you know, kind of more developmental, kind of social, emotional, kind of psychological development work alongside that as they do this project-based work. So I think in some ways, you know, we've kind of lost the language you know, of talking and even tr like blowing our own trumpet about that kind of process based work that we have done, you know, and are doing. I think the key tension, though, you know, is, is there's two things for me. One, we still are in an era where youth work is struggling to be able to say to people this is what we do when you say i'm a youth worker we're still in that kind of groundhog day of oh you play pool with young people you know on you know tuesdays and thursday nights you know we're still in an era where people don't really fully understand you know what you know what youth work is you know and at the same time you know um we're, we're because of all the cuts do you know what I'm saying? You know, because of all the cuts, you know, the public sector cuts, uh, the, 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 the sector, the youth work sector is kind of 
it's it's been gradually disintegrating. You've seen, you know, kind of more public sector kind of youth work is is getting skeletal. It's been increasingly kind of being stripped down, you know, and so that more universal type work, you know, um, is almost like a bygone era. Um, but I would argue, you know, going back into history, <laughs> that um, you know, this is the type of work. Um, that youth workers have been doing, but alongside, you know, all the changes in youth work, youth work's become a lot more policy driven as well. And the sense is, you know, this is the policy, the policy around antisocial behaviour. This is the policy around employability, you know, and, you know, people are applying for funding because of policy. And I think there's, again, a bit of a, a reticence, you know, um, around mental health because we know it is the current hot, policy agenda and we're like oh goodness is this another thing that youth work's going to get co-opted into do you know what i mean um and it's going to stretch youth work beyond its capacity so i think i just want a kind of careful kind of considered discussion around i think what alison said is on the money it's not that we're asking or anybody's asking youth workers to be counsellors per se that's not, but we're saying that youth work has historically, you know, done this kind of work, but it's never really shouted about it, like in the sense of it was just part and package of that social, emotional, kind of psychological, developmental work that went along as part and package, you know, of youth work. And if you take the youth work principle seriously of you start where young people are at, this is where they're at, you know, this is what they're coming to youth clubs this is what they're coming to school and they're not disclosing it to their teachers you know they're disclosing it to youth workers you know um so this is where the young people are at but i understand you know the kind of hesitancy from a kind of you know is this going is this the new policy agenda that's going to engulf youth work and then we're going to be what youth work actually is you know is going to be diluted it's going to be co-opted and then once that policy agenda is done then youth work's going to be chucked to the side as it always is um but i think this is slightly different in the sense that i think it is young person led because young people were going to youth workers with mental health issues and post pandemic we're going to youth workers with mental health issues you know before you know the policy agendas that before the policy machine, you know, started acting on this. So this is why I am debating this, and I'm. I, 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 that's why I approached you all um, to have a, a a debate on this because I'm torn. To be honest with you, I don't think youth workers should become counsellors. Though it'd be great if we could get paid the same rate as a counsellor. You know what I'm saying. But um, I actually think, no, wait a minute, we've been doing this for quite a long while. Why don't we actually get some recognition for it? Especially now that, you know, the policy is actually crying out for it. So that's where I'm kind of at. Connor? I think that there's, I, so I suppose there's a couple of things. So the last, so I, start, I, suppose, I started being a page of worker 2011, got a full-time job 2013. Um, my main focus when I started being a page of worker 
was um, within a school setting. So um, I was 20 hours a week, but sat in a school five days a week, couple of hours, and I done youth clubs at night. When I was in, like, sort of my original settings, we wouldn't have called it mental health work as well, and that was only 10 years ago. So, like, we were probably doing... I was working with young people, focusing on their mental health. We might have not called it anxiety properly. We might have... And that was maybe my experience as well, so I don't speak for everybody. I'm talking fully for just my experience and how I've done things, I suppose. So, even in bringing that up, this is what I've been trying to think about just when we're speaking there, so bringing that then even to probably when I then moved full-time in her centre, I still probably wouldn't have really focused, so that would have been 2016, I still wouldn't have called it and I wouldn't have spoke about calling it mental health like work, probably 2018 onwards is when I would probably have started changing that phrasing, but actually the what we call it is probably slightly different, but actually we're still doing the same work, but there's, I think you're right, actually it's the policy changes, the language changes, the focus changes, so there's a level where uh, we've always sort of done this type of work where we are sometimes the first person and they'll speak to sometimes people just might not be feeling good and it doesn't necessarily always mean that as anxiety or depression just sometimes people can feel shit and sorry i swore by the podcast we can maybe fix that i don't know but sometimes people, <laughs> um, sometimes just people feel bad um but then there's the other level then when that escalates and how people feel and then I think we've all experienced that when you're workers when you can see that with people and then that's when you start signposting. I suppose to answer the question for you, Ian, I think that there's a role that youth workers have always played and there is a role to play, but the big thing for me is terminology and what it's called and the focus on what organisations are really doing and what they are saying. So like how we work within South Lanarkshire, is totally different capacity to say Glasgow, for example. We've spoke about this a lot, Ian, where it's the first Glasgow Council outsourced their youth work and CLD offer pretty much to the third sector and they don't really have their own staff as much. Compare that then again up to Aberdeen, compare that down to the borders, it's all different and it's all different expectations and language and phrasing. So to break it down, yes, we should have a role within that that's safe and correct, signposting to the right organisations so you, we've got an organisation South Lanarkshire Region FX to do the go-to project and that is a counselling service and um, youth work counselling blended service for young people to tap into between the ages of 14 and 21 if I've got that age wrong sorry um, but it's amazing we are very fortunate to have that but not everybody also has a project like that that they can signpost and refer into as well so I think that's where the big thing for me is now when we're looking at mental health the role for youth workers and community workers it's we've always done it terminology terminology is changing and there's a much further focus on mental health and well-being than there maybe has been in the past but it's how we badge that together and how we support staff to do that safely for the young people because i don't think it's fair that staff aren't confident and then they're in that conversation because i do think that we could make a mistake and make somebody feel worse if you're not fully trained and that needs to be recognized um which is difficult because you kind of get everybody at the same levels at all times unless you've got universal training for everybody but we've got no money and we're prat it so that's not going to maybe happen but that's where it is for me i suppose now and looking at planning a running a, a youth center or a community center however we're calling them um that is one of my concerns is that we're not the trainings are available and sometimes you can't give training because it's either like your member staff goes on training or you close your building 
so then you're closing your provision that people need so somebody can get trained but then greater good says training but actually practicalities you're maybe not allowed to do that in the moment there's a, there's a lot of barriers but terminology big change but I think there's a role if that answers the question I suppose yes no thank you and I just to add my own top and so forth it's, it's a weird one when you you need to ask questions to sort of stimulate conversation when you've got a very clear answer in your own head of what you're thinking I suppose I, I broadly agree with everyone else that I absolutely think that it's that it's still that that is part of the youth work offer or, or the youth work appeal and I think for me that even if you took the, the, the formalisation out of it, I appreciate what you guys are trying to do is to get more recognition and and more remuneration for that. But youth work is a, a sector built on compassion and love and humanity. And even if we said tomorrow that this isn't part of your job, it doesn't mean youth workers are going to stop caring for people and it doesn't mean that youth workers are going to stop. So I think like by proxy, the people who are drawn to this kind of work are going to continue this kind of work. And I think actually if we could get people sufficient training and fund it and resource it in a way that means that they can do that more efficiently, then I absolutely support that. But I did have to can ask the question. I want to pick up on a couple of things that you said, Andy. Um, two points in particular. One, looking at the third sector versus local authority and also the shift between universal youth work to more project-based youth work. And I'm probably going to fire both of these questions out together and um, anybody wants to pick it up. So the first, the first one was... is. I suppose, is there anything in your research? Um, did the samples include the third sector and local authority? Me and Connor, again, up until fairly recently, have done very similar jobs, um, but one one in third sector, one in local authority. The day-to-day -day job is very, very similar, but how that looks and the protections that are offered and the things are very different. Therefore, the people's ability to carry out that job is very different. So I'd be quite keen to see if there was like differences in the samples. The other thing being the, the shift between universal youth work to project-based youth work. And I think you're, you're absolutely right. People have this vision of, of youth work being playing pool on a Tuesday night, I think was the example that you gave. But actually, for me, that part of youth work was so important. And I go to Connor's setting quite often. Um, and I'm insanely jealous that he has a youth work centre. That's what you go in and you're like, no, that's a youth work space. And I don't have that anymore. And I get insanely jealous about that. But what I also find is, is playing pool wasn't just playing pool. It was connecting. It was building relationships. It was sharing and, and bonding and connecting. And for me now, what I find is I, I'll see the same young people fairly regularly. And I could tell you exactly what their views are on racism. I could tell you what their stance is on, on current trans issues. I could tell you what they think about gender-based violence, but I have no idea if their father's alcohol consumption is becoming problematic at home. I have no idea if they're being bullied at school. I have no idea if they have other other issues. It can be had a whole range of things. Because now when I speak to them, I speak to them about a project or I speak to them about an issue or I speak to them about a thing. So for me, like the, the two questions I'm probably going to put out is, is the first one about the third sector and local authority is, is are there differences in, in, in how young people receive a service there? But also, what does the future look like now that we're in a position where universal youth work has more or less been replaced by project work uh, and do we try and get back to that uh, I want to but I don't know if A that's possible or B the right move so I'll just sort of open that out to, to everyone I mean just to pick up on the on the research and the participants 95% of our participants came from the third sector and certainly in the northeast of England, I'll leave Andy to talk about Scotland, but in the northeast of England, that totally and utterly reflects 
the amounts of cuts that have gone on since 2010. I mean, in 2020, the YMCA did a report and they reckoned that local authority youth work, so just focusing on statutory youth work, we'd lost more than 4,000 local authority youth workers across England and Wales since 2010 because of austerity. And we'd lost 750 youth centres. So to say that, to say that um, local authority provision has been cut is a vast understatement in England and Wales. It's been decimated. If I think about where I am in the northeast of England, um, Newcastle has, I think, a skeleton staff of maybe four statutory youth workers, and their role is to coordinate what's what's been provided by the third sector across the city. Gateshead have lost all their local authority workers and the same for all of the, the kind of local authorities in the northeast. So in the northeast of England, 99% of the youth work is in the third sector. And again, what we've seen in the third sector since 2010 is the number of grants have decreased more and more people applying for less and less money. So the, the situation for youth work is very precarious. The young people are in precarious situations, but the youth workers that work with them are also in really precarious situations. Six month contracts are not uncommon. I don't know how you work if you're a worker with a family or a, a rent to pay on a six month contract. So there's a continual churning as well of experienced workers out and, you know, workers that you've got to support into the role in. Um, so certainly in the northeast of England, most of the of the, the the people that we interviewed were, well, all of the people that we interviewed were working in the third sector. Andy, do you want to talk about the Scottish situation? Yeah, I mean, to be absolutely honest with you, I think Ian and um, Connor could probably give a more kind of holistic kind of uh, view of that, you know, but I mean, one of the things that really surprised me, because I have said before, I did leave Scotland in 2008 um, from CLD and that I just came back in 2021 and coming back to CLD um, still with kind of lockdown going on was a bit, was a bit interesting, but I got, because of contacts that I'd kept kind of through the years, um, in 2021, I got approached by the CLD Standards Council um, for Scotland and asked if I would like to contribute um, to a leading CLD training programme, which is for, um, you know, practitioners who are leaders within the, the CLD sector. And I remember saying, you know, oh, is this for the voluntary sector? And they were like, no, 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 it's for, you know, councils, it's for the, the public sector. I was like, you've still got people um, in the, the council leading CLD provision? Because I'd come from, you know, the Northeast where I'd, I'd witnessed, and I was actually doing active research on everything that Alison has just uh, described. And I saw some really, really amazing you know, um, youth and community work programs. 
um, getting pushed to be voluntary run, getting pushed to become social enterprises, community asset transfers yeah. was the big thing. Um, you know, um, from, I would say it was the right to buy, you know, all of these different things um, that came in with the, the big society agenda. Do we remember that? David Cameron and his big society, but it was part of that agenda and the localism agenda. Um, yeah. So I'd come from, from that, you know, where full-time public sector, community development and youth workers, you know, were asked to stay on in projects as volunteers um, or that project was under the threat of closure um, just so that they could build capacity, you know, um, within that community project so that they could, as a, vol as a voluntary group, apply to do a community asset transfer. So when I was approached by the CLD Standards Council and the first year there was like 26 trainees or something, but what's also interesting about that is, and I'm going to be controversial here, why have we got a training programme about leading CLD, which has actually been designed for managers and leaders in public sector CLD but aren't qualified or have a lot of experience, you know, within CLD. So, I mean, you guys will know better than me because as I said, I was in incognito for a while, but I think that's a product of restructuring, you know, that's went on in local authorities, you know, and I would assume that, you know, the most vulnerable were kind of middle management, kind of CLD, kind of public sector workers and now we're in a position this is really controversial i'm probably going to say to you later edit this out but you know um but we're in a position where we've got cld managers and leaders who aren't cld qualified um or experienced so that says to me that big changes were afoot um at the same period and i think you two are probably more privy um, to that knowledge than I am. So the floor is yours. Um, I suppose just to answer the question, Ian, about Project and Universal, maybe first and then um, can go into that one, Andy. Um, Andy, sorry. Um, so Project Universal, like for me, Universal Youth Work, because that's the ticket. Like I think that's the bread and butter and I think that's where you make the most meaningful relationships and do what we do. And um, I'm in a very fortunate position where I've got a bit of both, where I'm able to have project worth within a youth universal youth work provision, um, because we are set up that way. South Lanarkshire, um, is very still very well off in terms of the CLD sector. We have dedicated buildings still. We've got projects that offshoot within that. Um, but I'm also very aware that other local authorities haven't get the same, haven't had the same protection, which leads into what you'd say just there about there's people that have been there's service restructures and then there's um, cuts which then put people from all these different places then call it CLD and and it's not really CLD because they're just trying to merge everything about and it's however local authority fundings worked based on individuals if they actually understand what CLD is is it an easy cut because you maybe sit within edu education or leisure or there's community enterprise depending on the language because they're all called them a wee bit differently um, but like so in terms of where I sit right now we've been very fortunate to be honest um, so we do have a solid and youth work offer potentially 
the same one of the safer ones, not the safest, but just because we've got dedicated buildings. Um, whereas then I know that there's other colleagues that we spoke to for running this podcast and just people that you know who still have maybe a solid staffing, but they don't have buildings. So they need to hire buildings, you need to rent buildings, you need to speak to your third sector partners to share and collaborate in spaces. There's all these sort of challenges that people need to go with, which is going to is increasingly difficult when costs are getting higher, spaces are getting closed because just the council and government are just shutting basically anything that's going to benefit people these days. Um, but I so it's the for me the in terms of where we are, I think that we are in an okay position. Um, in terms of where I work personally, but I know that there's so many other. Um, uh, local authorities who are struggling in terms of their CLD through mergers and try to just sort of consolidate what they're doing in cuts. Um, and yet I don't know what's coming for us, to be honest, this year, if there's cuts and how that'll really work. But as we record this on the 20th of October 2023, um, like I can say that we've been in a good position and we have been for years. Um, we've been very fortunate, but I know that no everybody is in that position. Um, Ian can speak much better than me than, in terms of third sector as well. Um, but we've we've had a lot of conversations really about that. But that the there's third sector people and organisations are applying for a lot more people are applying for the same money, who are then applying for the same money for less money to do more work, which isn't helping things. Um, and Ian, you can give better examples for that than me completely. Um, but that is a problem as well, um, which doesn't really help MD at all when it comes to the future of community learning development, youth work, community education, however we call this, whatever we're going to call what we do, um, which is it's difficult and it's a difficult position that we really are in um, when we are looking at the wider future of what we are sort of doing when we're talking about subjects. Is it a role within mental health? Where is universal youth work? Whereas projects based on the money and short-term contracts and all that stuff, it's a bit of a mess, to be fair, um, but we do our best. So, Ian, if you want to maybe jump uh, in there. I mean, I think you've more or less covered that. Like, anyone who listens to any of these podcast episodes that, I, that I've covered will hear me ranting about how third sector funding currently looks. And, and Connor's right, for me, it's a race to the bottom. Everybody has to commit to doing more for less cash and you're directly against the people that you're supposed to collaborate with. And how can you ever support how can you ever have effective relationships when you're literally in direct competition with one another? So um I, well, I, I think it's about competition's, competition's being created as well, which absolutely help, you know, and it's you're getting, I suppose, organizations who like we could potentially use mental health as a subject matter, organizations that have never never really focused on mental health at all. And then suddenly a big pot of money comes in, which is to focus on a three-year project on mental health, then they throw in to try and get the half a million, however much thousand pound it is, to then compete against an organisation that's maybe actually been delivering that for years, then they can undercut them because they Absolutely. need the money. So that's dangerous as well. Absolutely. Absolutely. I wanted to go back to the point Andy made about the sort of the local authority management structures. And I think I think you're right that there's a lot of I fully support the CLD Standards Council and YouthLink and their sort of bids to regulate our work. I think we should be regulated. I think there should be a dedicated youth work strategy. I think we should be unionised. And I think that we should have accredited staff that are recognised. However, I'm going to be completely hypocritical within that because as it currently stands, I have no CLD qualifications. 
and I have a real problem. I'm working towards a master's in community education at Dundee currently. But I have a, a real issue with, I have come up, I've went for jobs, local authority jobs, where the manager who makes a decision on whether I can be part of that team has no CLD qualifications. But then the reason for disbarring me from the process was because I don't have any qualifications. So I have a, a bit of an issue with the fact that I, I, I can have had a decade worth of experience doing youth work, CLD work, involved in um, closely with community asset transfers, set up community interest companies and all the things that come with CLD. But someone day one out of university is more qualified to do that job. So I, I find that fully believe that it should be that way. But until it fully is that way, I don't think we can penalise the people who who don't have the accreditation that we're looking for. And I think right now we're in a sort of strange limbo position. And, and that's not a criticism of the CLD Standards Council. And, and to be fair, I've had that conversation with them and they've been very open to it as well. But I think we create I think we've created a two-tier system. Actually, I think we've now we're now in a position where because third sector, not everybody has the accreditation, they're paid substantially less, and that, that can almost be justified. When people people generally come through the, the comed, the community development degrees, or, or whatever it's named, uh, working in communities, depending on what course you go to, nobody's going through those courses desperate to go and work in a local authority, or I've not met many who are. They want to be on the ground, they want to be grassroots, they want to be third sector, but a few years down the line, they want to have a family, and they want to have a mortgage, and they want to have all of these things. And what we've now got is a progression that, that means that people leave third sector to go to local authority or go to academia. And that's not a criticism. It's just like, you are paid better. You have better terms and conditions. Although I was going to say, I also am based in a university and I know just how precarious some of that work is as well. Um, but generally, it, a short-term contract in a university is still better than a short-term contract in a youth work organisation. Even if they're the same length in contract, you've got better terms, you've got better pay, you've got all of that sort of stuff. For me, there's a real missing step. There's no, there's no way really that somebody is going to go in to academia or go into local authority, and then go back to the third sector unless they're going to senior management positions. Nobody, nobody, it, even if Connor right there had the, the, the utmost drive to go back and work in a community with, with multiple deprivation and whatever, it's not. You're not going to take a fifteen grand cut. And it's basically what I'm saying. And and we've we've created a system now where we have two tiers. Um, which I have regularly heard people in the third sector say that people sell out by moving on to local authority or moving on to um academia, and, and by no means it's a sellout, but you have there has to be an element of self preservation when we're talking particularly about mental health and supporting mental health. Just going to bring me on to the next point that I wanted to go back to, as Andy had said, you mentioned people about volunteering, and one of the things that I when we talk about mental health support, I suppose is the language that we've used today. Um, as one is, is that you'll know yourself from, from doing the counselling course my mum's a counsellor and my mother-in-law's a counsellor you can imagine what family dinners are like at this house um, but both of them are counsellors but they, they often talk about the supervision they get and, and the opportunities and stuff that they get to offload and, and for me if we're going to pick up some of that work then that also that also has to be a consideration and I wonder if some of that's come through but, but a bigger concern for me is, is one of the things that youth work is really championed for is creating pathways for young people. So we have Ben, who is in the CLD Talks team with us, who does our editing. Ben was one of Connor's young people um, and now works alongside Connor and does work with, with CLD. That's great. That's a great success story and a great way to develop a young person. If we are saying now we are at the point where the majority of the work that we do is supporting people and their mental health, 
then they transition into volunteer positions and then they transition into employed positions, does that support continue to come with them? Or are we then creating a pathway where we create a dependency where young people are supported in that environment and then become an employee and that support is dropped? Um, so I don't know if anything is reflected within within um, the research or if you've got any sort of anecdotal instances of of the or responses to that. But I think for me that's a real a real problem is is that one day you can be a participant and two days later you can be a staff member and again we we don't can transition in that in that space either. Uh, I'm going to jump in there and I just want to say, um, Ian, you raised so many fantastic points in your rant there. I was like noting stuff down and going, oh, I could come into this. Oh, I could come into this. But I'm going to shelf it for now. If we can, can we can come back to it at the end. You know, like the whole thing, like you set yourself to do yourself out of a job. That's what you do when you sign up for like CLD, the whole purpose. But I'm going to shelf that, putting it to the side. But um the question about supervision, um, I think, is a really, really important one. Alison and I had many um, a conversation about this. I was really, really fortunate and that I had a MSc student. Um, I'll shout her out, Aliz Alyssa Faulkner, fantastic um, dissertation that you did. Um, she was looking um, at um, family support workers in Glasgow. Now, they had a, basically the family support workers in Glasgow, it's to do with the commissioning and care partnerships in Glasgow. And it's like, what was social work was really being, you know, given out to the third sector. So you had third sector charities that were picking up what, what would have been 10, 15 years ago, social work. So overspill um, for for social work, and there was a number of organisations who were part of this, you know, um, kind of community care partnership. And she was interviewing them about vicarious trauma, um, you know, how much vicarious trauma that they were picking up, you know, as a result of doing this frontline work, especially after COVID. Do you know what I'm saying? And she found that there were high levels um, of vicarious trauma, because as we know, the social, like counselling, you know, social work has, you know, a, an inbuilt, you know, supervision system within it where there's debriefs, um, there's training around reflexively managing yourself, all of these different things, you know, that's built into both counselling and social work, but. And it's the same with youth work, you know, when it comes to, well, youth working especially, supervision's usually around, you know, child protection and safeguarding. If there's a child protection issue, if there's a safeguarding issue, that's when, that would be the trigger that a youth worker would go to their manager, you know, for supervision support. But that Alison and I spoke about this at length, like, you know, and that's part of the further research that we want to do um, to get the, 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 the nuts and bolts of this. But what supervision is there in place, you know, to support youth workers? What we did find in our findings was that there were some organisations that had inbuilt counsellors. They had mental health support workers within that particular organisation. So it was functioning as a hub. Do you know what I'm saying? And part of that hub, there was, you know, counsellors over here, you know, kind of health support, mental health support and um, workers there, and they were getting support, but that wasn't a formalised thing. 
that was just because they were working in the same building or working under the umbrella you know of the same organization and we want to do more research to get to the bottom of that but the organizations that weren't attached um, you know, or had, you know, kind of deep partnerships um, with, you know, the, the organisations that they were signposting the young people onto. Um, we, there was no real discussion about, and it did come out in the, and, you know, not to the extent that we would have hoped, but it did come out in the, the findings, you know, that there was, that there was a, a real reticence again, I'm used, I think I've used that word three times already, but there was a real kind of like hesitance to, you know, about taking on some of that work because there wasn't the appropriate support. So my concern is, you know, if youth work is going to be holding these young people for considerable amounts of time, because I mean, to, to, to really go into it, I think youth work should be classed as an as an early intervention. You know, you know, to to stop, you know, young people get into crisis. You know, kind of mental health support. If they're going to be holding these young people to try and stop them, you know, to from going into crisis, you we're looking at waiting lists. You know, that are anything between six months to three years. You know, this was what was coming out. You know, from the literature. So, how can we hold? you know, the same young people who are not getting the support that they need for three years, you know, that is going to have a huge impact, you know, on the youth workers. So just to say, you know, um, I, um, I would say, you know, we need to look into that. And before, you know, youth work, you know, signs its, its name and blood, you know, on any contract, that's something that we really, really need to, to iron out. I think the point you made about creating pathways, you know, for for young people who then go on to volunteer, who then go on to, you know, um, be paid youth workers. I think it chimes beautifully with what I was discussing, you know, at the beginning. And you even mentioned it yourself, Ian, about maybe we're missing a trick here about we were talking about because we do as youth workers and I'm, Alison and I have had this conversation as well. We see further and higher education is the end goal. Woohoo! They got into college. Woohoo! They got into university. Our job is done. Success story. And we write a nice little case study in the next funding application that we put in. Do you know what I mean? But actually, they're not done. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? They're not actually done. And how many times, Alison, did we have conversations in that office about we wish there was youth workers attached? you know, to the university that we could signpost some of these yeah. students onto. You know, we're talking students who were 17 and 18 years old, who were, who, university, they never thought that they were going to ever go to university. Uh, they, they didn't consider themselves to be academically gifted, you know, when they were going through school. It wasn't part of their identity. They were always othered against, you know, brighter top of the yeah. class you know kind of kind of um yeah. peers so um and i think that was a trick that was missed but i'm going to stop there because i think i've probably went on for about five minutes so somebody else come in i was i was just going to pick up the issue about um training and supervision and i I'm, i totally agree with what you're saying about supervision I think we probably need restorative supervision, which is kind of a mix between uh, clinical supervision that a counsellor would have um, and uh, the supervision that you should be getting from your line manager. And 
I've spent all my work in life as a youth worker in the voluntary sector, the third sector. And uh, I can say that the supervision was patchy. I don't know if it's still like that, but it's something I think that... would be generous with it. <laughs> I think I'll... Yeah, totally and utterly. And again, that's to do with cutting, cutting uh, you know, when you're applying for funding, you, you cut the costs really for everything to the to the bare minimum but actually supervision is really really important it's totally important and just to to kind of pick up it's allied with that when when we asked um our youth workers the ones that we spoke to about support for them and did they want more training one of the really fascinating things that quite a few of them said was Actually, we'd like training that's geared to youth workers. There's an awful lot of training out there that's about teachers, um, you know, because there's all this stuff and Connor talked about it, you know, going on in schools. We're back to policy again, certainly in England. The policy has been let's address this, these, these rising mental health needs uh, for young people through schools. They're the, they're the best place to do it. Uh, lots of debate about whether they are or they aren't. But, um, it, oh, I've lost my train of thought. Ah. That's what happens when you're old. <laughs> now, you were talking about restorative supervision. And, I was you know, talking I'm... about training. So yeah. there's been a lot of training put on for um, teachers about mental health and understanding mental health and where to refer and all the rest of it, which is ge geared towards being a teacher in a school. So what the youth workers were saying to us was we'd really like some more um, training that recognises what where we are as youth workers and what we do as youth workers, which would probably start from a very different place to being a teacher because you'd already start from that point that we talked about before of um, well, you're very good at building relationships with young people. You're very good at listening. That was a key skill that came out, key counselling skill as well. Um, so maybe that's something that that really we need to take forward if we're going to talk to policymakers or whoever about this. Let's talk about developing training specifically for youth workers around being mental health supporters. I know there's the mental health first aid course, but that's quite broad in general. It's not specifically geared to youth work practitioners. And I thought that was a really insightful thing that people had to say. I think I think I totally agree. I don't think I totally agree. I do totally agree. Um, and, and I actually don't think that's just for the mental health support. I always find it funny. I used to work with an organisation and we used to run a football group. But the, the, the people who were delivering that were taught they went on a training course for football coaches. Yeah. As youth workers, we were using football as a medium to build connections and relationships and all the soft skills that we've spoken yeah. about. I didn't need to know the intricacies of how to be a football coach. I needed to know how to use football as a tool to do what we needed to do. And I think that's kind of the same thing that you're saying. And I think yeah. actually what's happened now is we've got youth workers who have to just pick bits from different jobs and kind of mould them into what it needs to be to actually do the youth work rather than having the, the, the tools. Um, yeah. But I think that that sort of leads me sort of nicely um, as we move towards the end is, is looking at like youth work as a whole. So not just the mental health sector um, and what does, where is youth work just now and, and where do you see it maybe over the next few years? It's the $50 million question, isn't it? Um, 
I mean, we've I've I've talked about England and the fact that uh, a lot of youth work has been decimated over the last twelve years. It, it's been really sad to watch, and quite recently, uh, one of the the government ministers uh, suddenly started to talk about youth work again, and I thought, well, here we go. Uh, although gets us back to that point about projects, you know, um, they've they've introduced a a fund they've got 19 million pounds and they've put it in this i'm just looking at it here the million hour fund so it's in in conjunction with the national lottery you can bid for it but you can only bid for it if you're in an area um that has high levels of anti-social behavior um so we're back to all that kind of thing about stigmatized communities again and stigmatized young people i think youth work is evolving it always has done, you know, if we go right back to where it started, we're not where we are when youth work started. We're not where we are where youth work was in the 70s, where girls' work was marginalised. Um, we're not where we were in the 80s when I kind of, in the late 80s, I came into it and the whole thing was about sexuality and Clause 28. Um, you know, we've we've moved a long way as youth workers and the things that we do, but for me personally, the biggest challenge to youth work is the funding and how we're funded, because that actually changes the nature of what we do. Yeah, totally agree. Andy? Yeah, I mean, it's really interesting because I've been listening um, back through the CLD Talks kind of catalogue. Um, you know, I've not listened to all of them, mind, but I've listened to to quite a few um and you know we all seem to be saying the same thing about funding you know that there there's just you know not enough funding and it's getting cut and cut and cut and cut and you know and, it, and every we, a, a lot of the discussion is about we need to you know we need to get more funding into the youth work sector the new youth work sector needs to be recognised, it needs to be celebrated, it needs to be appreciated, you know, for for the work it does. And I, I guess one of the reasons I wanted to kind of, to have this debate is like, well, when are we going to do that? Do you know what I mean? Like, it's just, you know, it, it we do seem to be kind of in a perpetual kind of groundhog day around, we know youth work does amazing things. It does. We've proved it, you know, umpteen times. We get drawn into partnership working, co-production, all of these different things with social workers, counsellors. That's another thing, you know, and um, there is literature. I mean, when Alison and I wrote, you know, the, the first article together back in 2022, you know, um, even from 2022 to 2023, when we wrote our second article, there are more people talking about the role of youth work you know in this mental health some people call it an epidemic some people are calling it a pandemic you know there's a big role here and but again you know we're having these conversations about well is this youth work is it this is it that what is youth work what are we are we are we universal are we project based are we public sector are we third sector you know and We've got organisations such as, you know, the Institute for Youth Work, you know, but 
I mean, it was one of the things that Alison and I have talked about, which is about, well, what is youth work? Can we all be doing youth work with the same values and principles, you know, with the same ethics, but doing it in different ways? Does it have to be Friarian, you know, kind of like critical consciousness building, you know, for it to be youth work? You know, does it have to be um, social justice and equality kind of focused? I'm all for that, by the way. But does it have to be, you know, that, um, you know, and I, th I, th I feel, you know, we don't have these debates because I think there's factions within youth work with regards to, you know, this is what I think it is. This is how it should be practiced. And, you know, I think it's time to have those debates and to have and to build coalitions, you know, and um, whether you're in the third sector, whether you're in the public sector, you know, um, whether you've got a youth work qualification, whether you don't have a youth work qualification, you know, I think it's time to start coming together, you know, as a collective uh, and shouting about the great work that we actually do because I don't want to be listening to a CLD Talks podcast in, you know, 12 months, you know, kind of 24 months, and we're still talking about resources and we're still talking about, you know, lack of funds and, you know, uh, it's going, the third sectors, you know, undercutting themselves and, you know, so on and so forth. I, I think we need to come together and I think we need to form a coalition around, you know, what makes youth work special what makes it unique and what makes it youth work and why youth workers you know should be celebrated for the work you know that we do and i think once you get that right once you get those foundations in place it's like field of dreams if you build it they will come you know but i do think actually you know i think with that recognition you know with that this is who we are I think you've got a lot more strength. I think you've got a lot more gravitas to say, no, we no, we need funding, please. And it just puts a bit more weight at the table to kind of to get that. So rather than come at it from the deficit angle, I'm coming at it from the, the asset angle as let's celebrate, you know, what we actually do and, and really, really work together, you know, to to collectively you know shout scream dance about the great work that youth work does um because i think that only by doing that we're going to get out of this what seems like kind of downward spiral of there's no resources resources are dwindling things are shutting down you know etc etc you know i think we need to find a, a new way to kind of approach this i've just I probably went a bit too radical there but um but i do um so i think the future of youth work is we need to get much better um at shouting about the good stuff that we do and making people listen we need to do it with people with audience we need to do it with people who have influence um and we need to start you know really really putting ourselves forward um, and talking about the fantastic things we do. And I'll shut up there. Cheers, Andy. Connor? Aye, so, like, my sort of, like, I feel like, so, I, since starting this podcast, like, 
my eyes have been opened up, I suppose, nationally. So we've been able to have conversations with people out of the place, right? So I was very, I was in my own space. We'd done our thing and you you worked at your own pace and where you were. But one of the big things I think that always comes out is the money side of things. But I think the thing with that is it's getting worse, not better. So like I think there's, we're, we're currently, we're going down and down and down and down and down and down and down with the money. So there's going to be a point when that has to crash and then they're, it's going to need to come back up. So it is, you know, it's it's just the sort of the way it's going to be. Hopefully it comes back up, but I think that's where we are now. But I think a big thing for me for future youth work, it's people who are in like, for us to, we all know the magic of youth work, right? I suppose that's, people listening to this podcast will generally be interested in some form before they hear this, before they see this, because they understand how good youth work, community work really is and the differences that really makes. But what the problem is, and if we're talking about the future and where that lies, is that there's people that sit in positions of power and government, local authorities that have no got a clue actually about the power of youth work, but they're ignorant to it as well, which is, I think, a massive like thing. So I was at a stag do at the weekend and um, I had a, a guy ask me, what do I do? I told him I'm a youth worker and he goes, oh, so what does that mean? So I tell him it's all about relationships. What do you mean by that? No, isn't he? You're you're doing it. You're doing an activity. You're doing arts and crafts. I was like, no, I need to hold you on a minute. That's not what it is. You try and explain it, and they're not listening. This individual holds a higher position in a local authority somewhere else. So he does, and I didn't know that actually at the time. I was sitting going, you probably make you're probably in the room with people when you talk about cuts. So like there's people like that that just don't understand actually fully what it is that we do, who are making decisions based on actually our, our roles and the impact that we can make in communities. So we need to make, for us to secure the future of CLD, your work and everything we do, there's your common Joe blogs that doesn't really know what we do. They need to understand what we do the same as they understand what social workers do and what teachers do. They need to have people that are in these positions that are talking about cuts and um shaving off budgets and, and putting um, budget lines elsewhere that actually that they properly know what they do and they see what we do. And I think we're not always the best at that. Um, it's not always articulated because we all get called different things where some people are just um, youth workers, some people are street workers, some people are outdoor learning, community capacity building workers. Like the titles are wild in our job as well. So there's no that makes it difficult as well for people to explain what they really do. But I think if we can start making a bigger like dent in that and the impressions and people the people in power and the people that are making these decisions, I think then it makes it harder for them to actually like make decisions on us and they need to actually think rather than just going, well, that's the easy answer. We'll just quarter their budget this year and they'll get on with it. Like we need to be able to get in spaces and speak to people so they fully know what we do so that then we can secure the future. Because I think we're in a position now where we are having to look at securing the future of your fuck. And to be fair, I didn't realise how bad it was, Alison, actually, in England. And the fact that it was 750, I think you said, like youth centres have been shut over the last 10 years or the 12 years, I think it was. Like, that's insane. Like, that's scary, the fact that that's where you have been so like me sitting here that I was going we need to prevent that from happening here like it's it's a shame that that's happened there in England and Wales and absolutely it's disgusting to be honest um, but we need to look at how do we prevent that 
I suppose, from our end in Scotland, but how do you change that in England? How do we make sure that places like that can get extra funding, that you can open more facilities, that more people can get access to generic youth work provisions or projects? Or, um, but I think a big thing is people to understand what it is we do, why we do it, and for them to actually give us the same sort of like respect that teachers and social workers get. The other two always go after. And I don't mean it in a bad way, but if you speak to somebody, they know what a social worker is, they know what a teacher is. Us, they don't really get us. So if we can do that, I think we can protect and we can secure the future for what we are and the amazing field and the work we do for our young people, communities, families, punters, whatever else we want to name them. I think usually I wouldn't, I wouldn't answer that question myself, but I'm going to just because I'm I'm here and I'm I'm riled. I'm going to build on what Connor said. I think I think there's worse than ignorance when people, but from decision makers, I think there's a level of exploitation, and I think we champion youth work and CLD more broadly as going above and beyond in almost everything that we do. And I think when we say we're going above and beyond, what we're actually saying is we're doing more than we're paid for. And I think the same things that I mentioned earlier on about compassion and about love and about humanity, when you have people who care about people and predominantly work with people, they do what needs to be done. And I think as a result of that, we're our own worst enemy. So yes, we need to sing about it and yes, we need to do better, but I think we need to be a bit more radical. I think we need to be regulated properly and I think that we need to unionise and I think that those coalitions and stuff that you spoke about Andy need to be formalised in a way that we value our own worth and we sort of take a stand against that. I don't want to get too political or too radical particularly as we're ending and towards uh, heading toward the end but I think I think is it, I mean I, I, I know the North of England shares a lot of similarities with Scotland but I think it, it's the most Scottish of things to not celebrate our wins as individuals anyway and I think when you get a, a sector full of people who are who care more probably about others than they do about themselves, the, the champion and what you do or what, what you're achieving um, seems a bit unnatural. Um, so I think like there's a big piece of work to be done there. But I think actually is, is as important as identifying what youth work is. I think we need to also identify what youth work is not or what it's no longer. Um, one, one of the, the things that I, I, I work a lot with young people who come into conflict with the justice system and often I find youth workers being invited into the conversations and stuff, and rightly, I think, but as almost like they'll be the solution. And I think when we've removed that universal youth work, when we've removed those provisions that allowed people to come in the door and play pool and build connections, the people out there causing antisocial behaviour, the people out there involved in violence are not the same people anymore that are accessing youth services. In fact, I would argue that youth services now have a certain stigma attached to them. You go there when you need more pastoral care. You need you go there when you need more mental health support. And I think absolutely you guys are right and the research is reflecting that that's the way that, 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 that youth provision is now looking. Therefore, we can't be the solution to antisocial behaviour. Therefore, we can't be the, the solution to recreational violence because that is no longer the people we engage with. And, and that is because of the fundamental changes led by funding and led by policy and led by cuts and and all of those things above. So I think we need to recognise what we are, but also be firm and, and create boundaries on, on what we're not, or what we're not willing to be, or what we don't want to be, Um, I think. So I just jump back off my high horse before we move on. Very conscious of time. I think I was going to say, we've took almost twice as long as most, but there is twice as many people here on this podcast, so that probably makes sense. Um, Just before we go to the signature question, just going back to your research, 
looking to finally at, at sort of next steps. Where can people, if they want to access the research, can they access it now? If not, when can they access it? And will there be any sort of ways to contribute um, to, to the ongoing research going forward? At the moment, um, we're we're planning to do some focus groups. So we want to talk more about what people are actually doing. What's the nitty gritty? How are they doing it? Are they doing it in groups? Youth workers do it in groups, I hear. Um, or are they doing one-to-one -one stuff? So we want to find out a bit more detail about what they're doing. So there will be some focus groups coming up, one in the northeast of England, one online, one in Edinburgh, I believe. But if there's lots of people who want to get involved, we're happy to do more. We're also looking at a way of having an online conversation. I don't know. Um, uh, well, I'll, I'll leave it there at the moment. As soon as we kind of get that up and running, we would we would kind of like share that with you guys. Um, and at the minute, if anybody wants a copy of the, the kind of headline findings from the research, probably best to email myself or Andy. Um, it's much more readable than a stuffy academic journal, which or article, which of course we're, we're in the midst of um, having completed as well. But I can certainly send people a, a, a quick overview of, of the results and what we found. And we'd love to have as many conversations as we can. And, you know, not only about youth work as an initial mental health support, but exactly that fact that you just raised, Ian, you know, what is youth work in the 21st century? Where are we? Where are we going in the 2020s? Um, and it is fascinating. And um, not wanting to open the whole thing up again, but I did find it quite interesting that when we asked people where they worked, um, and it might have just been the range of respondents that we got, there was a lot of street work going on in detached youth work going on in England and not as much in Scotland. And I wonder if that answers some of that stuff that you were saying about who are who are kind of constituency is who the client group is because I think if you're out on the streets a lot more you are getting those young people who may end up in the juvenile justice system you know who may get involved in stuff that if they have somebody they can bounce things off they wouldn't so um I'm not saying detached youth work my favorite source kind of youth work personally is the answer to everything but I, I think it's really important no, absolutely. And actually, like, there's been a marked decline in, in, in detached youth work. And it was also my favourite um, part, part of the job and, and something that you see very rarely now um, yeah. across Glasgow and the West. Well, that's yeah. that's interesting. That That's certainly a big difference that we picked up between Scotland and, and England in our research. Seems to be a bit more, I'm talking generically here, I suppose, but seems to be a bit more of an add-on these days up here. Right. Um, okay. Than sole projects, like... I know a couple of projects or a couple of um, organisations that do really focus on detached work, but mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. the chats that we've sort of had, and there's only actually like maybe been two that have featured on the podcast before that have been detached youth workers and okay. employed to do, whereas a lot of the majority of people, it's more a, we can do that every odd, maybe Friday night to try and get a bit busier, um, or there's projects that they get money for 12 weeks to go to an area through like different sort of things but it's definitely not as prominent 
Okay, interesting. Perfect. Andy, have you anything to add on that? No, I mean, Alison says, I mean, we really, I mean, we're going to, we're going to go into stage two, you know, of the research, as Alison says, um, you know, we're originally going to speak to the youth workers that we already surveyed. So we're going to get back in touch with those original um, youth workers and invite them to a focus group. But if you are listening now, it probably won't be um, the the focus groups that we do with the, the youth workers, because I know there's a delay and obviously editing this, getting it out, all of these different things. So the focus groups will have likely happened. But if that if by listening to this podcast and you're like, I've got a view, I definitely want to talk about this, then get in touch with, you know, Alison and I. We're hoping to do a third stage of research as well. We haven't fully decided, you know, what that's going to look like. I think it's going to involve a lot more policy work and working with you know health policy you know and working with organizations such as the cld standards council such as youth link you know the institute for uh, youth work it's about um, but we're still you know putting the meat on the bones for that um, but if you are listening um, to this this is an ongoing project i mean and i want to say it's not an academic exercise i mean alison and i you know we want to find we want to find out how we can help practice and how we can help practitioners out there and what you know what is the need so and by you know from what we've got so far and the conversation you know that we've just had you know right now you know there's there's so much you know that we could potentially do with that this could potentially be you know like a 10-year project to be absolutely honest with you you know we were talking to um some professors um at northumbria and it was it last week or the week before, Alison? And um, they were like, oh, "You are going to have to dedicate, you know, a, quite a substantial chunk of your life to this because there's a lot in it." You know what I mean? So we're in this, you know, for for the long haul. You know, whether you know in academia or out of academia, you know, this is this has been a passion for Alison and I for a, a very very long time. So if um as Alison said we're, we're kind of working out how we can do it but we're thinking about kind of like online kind of coffee stops and stuff like that where we could let people know you know when we're online and if people wanted to come and have a chat where there's no recording and you're not getting like you know hounded so you can be in a, a journal article do you know what I mean where you just want to have you know a talk then I think we're going to try and create some some spaces to do that because there is an appetite for it there is an appetite for people you know youth workers youth volunteers you know all of this to have these types of conversations brilliant thank you and it, like we've said um offline anything at all that you're going to do or that you're going to run then we will share on the cld talks socials so you can check out there and we'll keep you up to date about to bring us to a close but as with every episode um we finish with the same signature question and that is, um, if someone was starting out in a career in CLD or, or youth work specifically, what advice would you give them? Just a couple of lines for, for someone just starting out in this profession. I'll go first. Volunteer. Volunteer. Um, you know, um, volunteer with the public sector. I, I did a research volunteer with the public sector it's the only time i've ever worked with the public sector um but um i tried the public sector wasn't it wasn't to my taste i found it a bit too bureaucratic for my liking 
um, tried a variety of different roles um, in the, the voluntary sector till I, f I found out and then I ended up in detached work. That's what I did for, um, for quite a few years and travel. Um, Scotland, CLD is, you know, um, is very Scottish, but actually, believe it or not, they practice this thing called community education in other countries as well. Um, if you go to Australia, for example, um, the CLD um, accreditation and qualification, you know, is recognised, um, you know, in Australia. Um, Canada, it's a bit trickier, but there are parallels. So, you know, although we struggle sometimes to go, what is this thing called CLD? Actually, it is recognised in other countries as well. I had some of the best experiences in my life um, in a so-called socialist country um, in Central America, where I worked in community cooperatives and I was doing, you know, um, a, I was actually working, operationalising, you know, a model of participation before it became a thing. Um, so volunteer, try different things on for size. And if you do get the chance, travel and see how other people are doing it. One of the best things that travel taught me was I, I used to think everything was social class, you know, because we're Scottish, you know, especially in the West Coast of Scotland, you know, um, if you, well, my family were labour supporters, not so much anymore. And, um, you know, um, we definitely had a thing about class, but there's other, you know, axes, you know, of oppression um, in the world. And it's really, it's really important sometimes to get and in, get involved with people and projects that are quite different from your own background and your own upbringing. So you just kind of check yourself kind of every now and then. Um, so volunteer and travel from me. Brilliant. Thank you, Andy. Alison? I fell into youth work. It was never something that I had kind of planned to do. Um, so for me, I think that the big thing is find yourself a really good mentor. Um, I, I, I came to Newcastle to do a piece of research with young women who were in the care system. Um, so I thought I was kind of like a social researcher. And then I ended up uh, getting involved in youth work through that. But I, I had a really good mentor. I had somebody who I thought was a really fantastic practitioner. And I watched what she did and I learned from her. And I had informal supervision from her as well. And that really, really helped. So if you can... If you've got your passion, whether it's sport or music or drama or arts and crafts or whatever it is you want to do with young people, certainly, you know, follow that. But having a really good mentor helps find your feet as well. Absolutely. Thanks, Alison. And Conor, I don't know if you've ever been asked this, but I'm sure you've asked it a million times. But what's your piece of advice to someone that's starting out on in a CLD journey? Hey, I did answer it on our first birthday episode. Mm. Don't know what I said. So the day, I'll say, on the 20th of October 2023, uh, I think if you've got a passion for helping people find out, like, find out where to do it and where suits you. And I think don't just sort of cling on to, if you wanted to be a youth worker, try the other aspects of... Um, CLD and community education. Um, that was one of the things that I never really get the opportunity to do till later on. 
Um, and I think that you should definitely give that a go, that work with adults, work within communities, and just take any opportunity that really sort of comes to you. Because um, wherever you work in different places you work, you'll meet new people and you'll learn from them um, from in terms of staff and mentors, but and also like the young people and the learners that you come in contact with. Um, just whatever opportunities, say I everyone, make it work if this is what you want to do, and then you'll find your path somewhere. Brilliant. Cheers, Connor. That's us for today, guys. Alison, Andy, Connor, thank you all very much. It's been an excellent conversation and, and one that we'll maybe pick up again offline and see where we can go with it next, especially as the next pieces of research come out. But thank you very much for joining us. Thank you very much for listening to CLD Talks and tune in for the next episode. Cheers.